You're listening to Ambe, a year of Indigenous reading. I am so happy to be here to talk about being surrounded by relatives. These books that we've that I've collected are just you know, some of them were really surprising to me. I hadn't. Uh, I don't think any of my high school science teachers had ever thought that I would pick up a physics book again, but uh, I really, really enjoyed uh, Disordered Cosmos. So what I was reflecting on, uh, you know, uh, as we're kind of going to move into the introductions was last night on Medicine for the Resistance, we talked with Helen Knott and she had written um, a memoir uh, in my own moccasins, uh, a memoir of resistance, and we were talking about loss the loss of relatives, the loss of place, the loss of connection. And we had been talking about connection to place and going home and the feeling of the land remembering me when, when the first time that I went home and how incredibly powerful that was because I, I hadn't been expecting, I wasn't used to thinking in, in that way at that time. And so to have that feeling of the land remembering me was really surprising. And then I would, and of course, I mean, I was thinking how Carrie, um, you know, my co-host would hear that, uh, you know, she's, you know, part of the Black diaspora and doesn't know where that land is that would know her ancestors. And then Helen made a comment uh, later on in the conversation that her grandmother had told her what medicine shows up. You know, her grand, they, she was going through some stuff as we all do. And her grandmother had made a comment about medicine showing up. And in the context of what we had said a few minutes earlier, it sounded like the land reaching out and offering something of itself, um, you know, to any one of us. And it sounded to me, you know, in the context of thinking about Carrie and how she might have heard our earlier convert, you know, the earlier part of the conversation and, and the loss that would be associated with that for her. You know, I asked her about that, you know, what, what medicine shows up for you? What, in what way does the land reach out to welcome you and to know you? And so that in the context of our conversation, that's kind of what I want to hear from each of you as, as we introduce ourselves and then in, in the chat as well. Um, how, how, do, what medicine shows up for you? How does the land or the universe, you know, <laughs> whatever, you know, what, what, whatever it is that reaches out to you as you were writing the book or reflecting on the book. So we'll start with Janessa and then uh, she'll go take off into the, and focus on the chat. So Janessa, what medicine, what medicine shows up for you? Oh my gosh. I was hoping to just fly under the radar of that question by keeping my camera off, <laughs> but you still are picking on me anyway. Um, so I was, I read Braiding Sweetgrass. Um, well, I read Braiding Sweetgrass like last year, but for this month, I was kind of reading um, Robin's other book called Gathering Moths. And I haven't actually finished it yet, but I just think just like reading, going through the book, the way that Robin writes about moths, it almost feels like this like love letter to moths. And I think like, just like reflecting on that, I've never heard, I've never really read a book where um, like a, a single like plant has been described in this way. And like, there's one particular chapter um, where she talks about reciprocity. It's called Web of Reciprocity. And she's like, it's like the chapter focuses on like her journey, trying to figure out 
what the traditional uses of moss were and like figure out um other like if moss was like as loved by other people as like as how she loves moss <laughs> and um I thought it was really interesting in this chapter and this might not be exactly the answer you're looking for Patty so I apologize but one of the things that she found um was one of the ways that moss reflects its like best gift was in the hands of of women um most namely during their like reproductive cycles and with babies and I thought this was interesting sort of like looking forward to next month's conversation where we're going to be talking about mothers and made me think about how you called um like this month was like talking about how we're all connected. And I was like, even in this book, like we're already connecting with like the next month's topic a little bit. And I just thought that was pretty cool. So that is what I have to say about that. I'm gonna peace out now. Thanks, Janessa. <laughs> I'm gonna go clockwise around my screen. I don't know if this is your screen, but this is my screen. So uh, Celeste, what, me what medicine shows up for you? Um, a couple of things actually, for me, water has been showing up a lot. Um, I actually started out as you know, because we've been friends for a long time in the city and I gravitated, um, out of the city and I came to Manitoulin Island, which is the biggest freshwater island in the world. And I'm surrounded by water here. And when I was in the city, I would constantly try to get to the water, but it was super hard, right? To do that. So now I live a few minutes from the water and I'm always going down there and just being here. But I would get this overwhelming feeling that I, when I first moved here that I, that I have to get in the water. It was bizarre. I would just tell people if I'm in the car with them, you need to stop. I need to just jump in the water and then we can continue on to where we're going. You're so, I don't know what your deal is, but I think when I first moved here, I was just getting off all of the stuff that was hanging off of me, right, from the stress and the anxiety of, uh, so that, that water just calls me and I just jump in now. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, ben? Yeah, um, so like Janessa, I've been really kind of uh, diving really hard into Robin Mulkimer's work because um, I've been studying ecological restoration for the last year or so, and that's pretty directly related to this chosen field. Um, and some, something in her book, uh, Braiding Sweetgrass, or the chapter about following in the footprints of Nana Bojo really stuck with me because it's, um, you know, it's about becoming indigenous to place. Right? and building and developing a connection with the land where, where you happen to be. And that struck a bit of a chord with me because, I mean, you know, like one side of my ancestry comes all the way over, over from Ukraine, where, you know, where they were displaced by war and famine. And then the other chunk, another chunk of it comes way from way out northwestern Ontario, which, I mean, as much as I identify as Ojibwe, northwestern Ontario Ojibwe is kind of a different different uh, different brand of Ojibwe than you get in central Ontario. Um, and then, so I've, on top of that, I've been in Toronto um, for the last, oh, I don't know, six months, half a year, on and off, on and off for a good long time now. 
And it's been, it gets really difficult to feel a sense of connection to the land when you're surrounded by so much concrete and traffic and pollution and all that noise. So, but what's been kind of keeping me sane out here is, um, you know, doing a lot of back alley botanizing. You know, I've been, I've been noticing that the places where I tend to feel like the strongest sense of connection to land in Toronto, they're like, they're not necessarily the, um, like the designated conservation spaces like Tommy Thompson Park or, or the ravines. It's these little places in the alleys where like little plant, like little plants have been making a go of it. And the, and you know, and the, the this, these like little mounds of pigeon droppings and sand that kind of accumulate where things, things grow. I've been, no, there's this really cool thing that happens where, you know, um, things like lamb's quarters or um, things in the nightshade family it's like one little seed will find a crack and then and then grit and pigeon droppings will kind of accumulate where this plant starts to grow. And then slowly you can kind of, you can actually see um, like great, like gradients as you go further and further, like through these, through these alleys where you, like you'll see these little mounds of accumulated, um, accumulated soil get bigger. And then the community of plants within these mounds will get more, more complex and most of these plants aren't indigenous to the area, you know, they're, um, a lot of them, you know, kind of quote unquote invasive, but if you sit and you watch, you watch for a little bit, it's like the birds, the birds in the area and the bugs, they don't seem to care too much whether or not they're invasive, you know, the bird, you know, they're perfectly happy to come in and eat this, you know, nibble on the seeds or the rodents will come in and ch chomp on them while they're still young. I kind of just, yeah, I feel like, I don't want to talk the point to death, but I feel like you can kind of see what I'm getting at though. It's the, that sense that life and nature find a way even when, and it tends, and it, and the beauty of it though, is it's happening in the places where we didn't seek out to conserve anything. We didn't set intentionally set this space aside. Things just, these processes just showed up and took root. I appreciate the direct part. Yeah. Neil, what medicine shows up for you? Um, I, this is a curious question for me. Um, so I recall you, Patty, telling the story uh, when you first visited the, where you came from and you feeling the land calling to you. And that story has kind of haunted me ever since because I, I am so disconnected from the land of you know where my people come from i'm separated by an ocean there's not a bit of indigenousness <laughs> in me to texas or you know this whole continent uh, and it's made me wonder what it would be like to to I mean, i've never had an urge to visit germany but now i kind of do want to go visit germany and and see if there's an experience there. Because growing up on the farm, I always felt very connected to, um, to that spot. Um, and, and also kind of knowing I, it, that there were people there before me. I mean, I, would, I remember sitting out at night and um, stargazing or whatever and, and listening to the highway, which was a half a mile away, but hearing traffic there and, and wondering what the people that 
you know, we displaced, what they, what did they hear and what did they see and, and all those things. So I, I, I think I've always had a feeling of not really belonging or I, I don't know if that's even the word. But when you talk about what my medicine comes to me from, from the land, I, sense, smells are really strong for me. Um, when I go to the, <laughs> to the Arboretum here in Houston, uh, even though I'm surrounded by the, the sounds of the freeway just out of sight, the smells of that, the forest, I mean, it's um, protected land otherwise. And, you know, running into creatures, uh, armadillos and things I run into there. But the smells of the, of the leaves and the plants, the, the dirt, um, that is somehow um, resonant for me. Uh, and when I read Braiding Sweetgrass, I felt like someone was articulating things that I, I felt, but I'd never thought to speak about, you know, <laughs> that, that um, I don't know how many people, you know, living in Houston and all the concrete and what have you, and, and city people, city people, city people, uh, <laughs> they're, they're um, you know, so many of them have never grown a plant in their life. Um, and, and so I don't even know how to talk to them about some of this. Um, but luckily, I, uh, when I was reading Braiding Sweetgrass, uh, a local performance artist of all things, uh, had a residency where she was doing public uh, events. And one of them was a reading group around Braiding Sweetgrass, because she's very concerned about living in this city of oil business and the pollution around that industry. Um, you know, things explode now and then and there's big plumes of smoke that cover the whole city and, you know. Um, and yeah, uh, and, and so that was uh, also kind of a nice connection to my, my performance art world that um, we had. Um, I don't know, I'm kind of babbling now, but. But yeah, the, the smells are really strong and just sort of the wonder about connecting to the dirt under your feet. Um, I feel like this is a complicated question for me. So I feel like I should, um, you know, start by saying that I think sometimes the relationship that I have to land can be misunderstood because um, I was born in East Los Angeles, El Sereno, if there's anybody in the audience who happens to be also from East Los. Um, but my mom was born in Barbados. And so sometimes I get articulated as like specifically, even in the context of being black, if not being a black of this land. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot of that. Um, but then I think also people sometimes imagine that having that relationship with Barbados somehow mitigates the fact that occasionally people ask me like, what part of Africa did your family come from? Um, and I, I, can, I will never be able to answer that question. Um, or sometimes people say like, oh, at least your family doesn't have like, you know, the same history of slavery. And I'm like, you do realize most of the enslaved people went not to the United States, but to Latin America and the Caribbean, right? Mm -hmm. 
Um, so I feel like the, the question of land for me is always very fraught. Um, and also that my mom and I have very different experiences with it. I should say like for her, it's been easier to find ways to root into the land that she is on um, in, in ways where she tries to be respectful of local communities. And this might be a generational thing that for me, that's more challenging. And so I bring this up to say that the last year being in lockdown has meant for the first time in my entire life, I actually sat and watched seasons in, a, in an area that was not urban. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, and I found myself asking different questions and this translated into, um, so I live in, on the New Hampshire seacoast and I also write a column for New Scientist. So I think probably readers of my column were really surprised when I popped up like late in spring last year with a column about how blue jays aren't blue. Um, <laughs> because I had spent, I had found myself in this situation where I was watching blue jays and not just like, look, there's a blue jay, which had been my experience very occasionally. I would see one somewhere, but where I was actually seeing them every day and watching their behavior. Um, and finding myself curious about um, what they were and how they worked and, 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 and asking all of these other questions that I had never asked because I had never really been in an environment where um, I was really watching other creatures living on the land. And so I think like right now, a lot of my relationship with the land is actually watching how all of the others are living on the land from from the desk I'm sitting at right now, because I'm sitting right in front of a window that looks out onto a wooded area. And so like watching, I learned that blue jays are very aggressive. I watched one fight with a cardinal over a tree at one point. Um, all of these things, um, I've been watching the deer in, in that have recently started to emerge and consume. Um, and I guess I, I I am very aware that in many ways, this is not like, I, I can't be rooted in this land in the way that like other people are, particularly um, the Abenaki people and um, the Penobscot people who um, come from a little bit north of where I am. Um, and at the same time, like part of the challenge that those of us in the Black Atlantic find ourselves in is like that we have to find a way to like build relationships with where we are that we are creolized in our relationship with the land. Um, and that that is a painful task, um, but also something that we have to learn um, to live with and in not hating ourselves, like not hate that um, and, 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 and live with the, the complexity of that. Um, I do feel like the other thing that I should mention is that I've also spent a lot of time because the disordered cosmos just came out talking publicly about Kanaka Maoli, I'm native Hawaiian land. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what's interesting is that not many people have asked me if I've been to Mauna, Mauna Kea, which is, um, you know, contested land in the fight over the 30 meter telescope. I have sacrificed professionally to fight with Kanaka folks. Um, I have also never been to the Mauna and I don't think I need to in order to feel very rooted 
in that struggle and in that land. And so I think sometimes it's not about physicality, but sometimes our land ties are through political solidarity. And I think that that's like especially true for those of us in the African diaspora who have experienced such extensive displacement that our sense of the land is almost that we are rooted in all of the political struggles of the land. Um, so I guess the last comment I will make about that is when I first started thinking about what to do when I realized that Kanaka were being criminalized is I knew that vocabulary as a black person, I knew that vocabulary very intimately of criminalized for defending your community. I also asked myself, what would I do if it was Barbados? Mm. And I knew that I would want people to fight with me if it was Barbados. And so even though Barbados is not where my land ties begin, there is something also about being island people that tied me to the Kanaka struggle um, and, and, and to their, their land struggle. Um, and as I say in the book, I promise I'm not trying to sell it. I'm just pointing out that I say this in the book. <laughs> um, I have a chapter called Lessons from the Mauna that um, Kanaka, the movement for sovereignty and the fight to articulate what has been called their Apano science um, saved me as a scientist. And I know that that wasn't the goal, but it is nonetheless what happened. And so again, I've never been to the Mauna, but I still feel very tied to it in that way. And for me, I think that I'm being in struggle with Kanaka Maoli people has been medicine. Mm. Yeah, when I read that part, um, because at, at the time that I was reading that, I was also, I had just done a couple of presentations to labor groups because uh, I'd done so a couple of presentations to labor groups for International Women's Day and then I think your book arrived a day or two later you know and so then I get to that part of the chapter where you're like I can't cross a picket line I can't cross a picket line and that was just like really because of the context that I have, was coming to that from it was just an incredibly powerful thing you know I can't cross a picket line that's that's, that's, you know, this is going to be my relationship. And that, that was just, it's, it, people should buy your book. <laughs> you go ahead and pitch it. People should buy it. It's a really, really, it's a really, really good book. Um, Danielle, what medicine shows up for you? Well, I think it's a complicated question for me too. I mean, it, behind me is a picture of where I grew up in Colorado, which is not Cherokee territory, but it's where I call home it's my heart home more than any place in the world because I'm third generation of my mom's family who were part of the mining exodus or kind of influx that contributed to Ute people's dispossession, right? And now I live in Seychelles um, on the Sunshine Coast in British Columbia, which isn't Cherokee territory. Um, you know, after the Trail of Tears, we were driven from our territory into other people's territory. Um, and so I... The relationship with the land is always a really complicated one for me too. Um, and yet, I mean, I think that the whole issue we're talking about is how do you, how are you in relation to land in ways that aren't about laying claim, um, but asserting obligation um, and not just to the human peoples who call it home, but also the other than human peoples. Um, and I love where I live here 
um, on the Sunshine Coast. It's a beautiful place. And under lockdown as well for me, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an animal person much more than I'm kind of called to plants, except for trees. Trees are, are the plant that I'm really drawn to. But I've become much more attentive to the little plants. Uh, like, you know, Ben's comments, um, like, I had no idea there were all these little flowers. And now I'm, I'm finding out what these are. I just learned about this thing called miner's lettuce the other day, um, which is amazing. And I had no idea this stuff existed. You know, it's a, it's a green leaf with flowers popping out of the middle. Um, and I think for me, when, I'm, when I think about that relationship, trying as much as possible to, to have it be infused by wonder and humility, um, these aren't my lands. This is, and I will never belong to the land in the ways that the Seychelles people belong to these lands. Um, but I hopefully can be in honorable relationship with this land and, and be continually surprised and delighted um, and, and sometimes frightened and confused by the relationship and the interactions here as well. Because I think oftentimes when we're talking about being in relationship with land, we're, we're kind of, we're presuming a, a, an inevitably positive one, but it's, it's complicated, just like it's complicated for our other than human kin. Um, and I, I think that's important too. In terms of medicine, um, we did, you know, under pandemic, we decided to put up a, a new garden bed. Um, and I had some old tobacco from Ontario. Um, and I tried to grow tobacco when I was in Ontario, when I was north of Toronto, and it was a dismal failure. Um, and I planted it last year, and it went wild. Like it I did not know you could have so much tobacco. Um, I did not know what I was doing, but it was amazing. And so I had this, this really incredible harvest of old tobacco that I was able to gift to people. Uh, it was far more than I could do anything with, but it, was, it felt very much like a, an, important, an important opportunity for sharing. Uh, because it came very unexpectedly to me. It, it was not because I know what I'm doing, um, but it was it it was really amazing to have so much tobacco that I could actually gift because I'm usually the one who's gifted tobacco, um, and so it was a it was a really beautiful experience. So I think for me, it's the that unexpected part of the relationship. Um, and one thing that drives me crazy here in BC is oftentimes you'll hear people say that they're an uninvited guest on, you know, Seychelles land or Musqueam land. And I'm like, that makes no sense. You cannot be an uninvited guest. You're either an invited guest or you're not. But the, like an uninvited guest makes no sense to me. Um, you can be a visitor. Uh, you can be a hopefully honorable visitor. You can be an invader. Um, and so thinking about where I am, I'm not an uninvited guest. I'm not even an invited guest, but I hope that I'm, a I hope that I'm moving toward being an honorable guest in these, or an, an honorable visitor in these lands. And if I can, if I am invited to be a guest, that's all, all the better. But I just, I hope that the work I do here 
doesn't make the relations harder for the people who are from this place. Um, so yeah, anyway, with thinking about that relationship to land and and what that calls calls on us to do, I think it's it's very complicated for all of us in very different ways, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in in Undrowned, um, in Und Alexis Paul by Alexis Pauline Gums, she writes so it's meditations about sea mammals, and so it's lessons on Black feminism, meditations on sea mammals, uh, and she writes about this giant sea mammal who had weighed up to twenty three tons swimming in the Bering Sea. A German naturalist discovered um, hydro. Damalus gigas, swimming large and large and lux, she writes, at least three times bigger than the contemporary manatee. Within 27 years, the entire species was extinct. So 27 years. So she, you know, Amy Winehouse, Kurt Cobain, Jimi Hendrix, within 27 years, this beautiful creature was extinct. And then she makes the comment that being discovered is dangerous. And you know, so Daniel, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with you um, because actually, you know, your comment about being a guest, uninvited or otherwise, you know, a trespasser, an invader, a discoverer, and in your books, uh, Badger and Raccoon, you talk about the risk, you know, the danger that being discovered had, I, I you know, had for badgers, and I realized actually that I have a, a badger stole that I got at a yard sale. <laughs> And I didn't realize until after I read your book and I was looking at it, it's like, I think that's badger. <laughs> so yeah, so I liberated it from somebody's yard sale, but now, now it just has an extra little layer of meaning for me. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that, about, you know, with badgers and raccoons and how dangerous, how dangerous it has been for them to be discovered? Well, I think when we talk about discovery, what we're talking about is exploitability. Mm -hmm we're not talking about relations. Um, and that I think is kind of the key moment. And if you are valuable as an exploitable object, you're in danger. If you're not useful as an exploitable object, you're also in danger. Um, and I think that that's the situation for both raccoons and, and badgers and for so many other beings um, is you're, when you're thought of as a commodity, use value either direction puts you at risk. It's only when you're considered as a relative or a, a being with inherent value on your own merits um, and according to your own priorities that you're not endangered in the same way. I mean, discovery is always about exploitation. It's, and whether, you know, whether it's um, material exploitation or ideological exploitation, um, the, the language of discovery is about extraction um, transformation into, into some sort of um, transferable commodity. Um, and so I think that that's the real danger is um, so much of the conversation that we have in, in ecology is, you know, a lot of people are trying to communicate the value of nature, but they're doing it within a frame that is only going to be more problematic and more exploitable. Um, and I think that's the, that's the conundrum we have is if, you know, 
there are reasons why people go toward capitalist language to try to communicate the importance of things, but that's only to make it easier to appropriate and and wound. Um, so I think we have to get out of that that kind of language. And you know, and you know, Robin Wall Kimmer has gotten a lot of uh, deserved attention here. But I think you know the the her piece um, in Orion on the language of animacy. Um, I think it's an important direction to go in thinking about kinship and relationship. But even then, I think, I mean, how many times do we see language about relatives being language about, you know, those who are exploitable and those who aren't? So even in thinking about re relations, we also have to think about the power dynamics within those relations. I mean, it's easy to call somebody family and still screw them over. Um, so I think always having that power analysis within that is is important, and you know it's as, as important for our human kin as it is for our other than human kin. Um, but yeah, I think that the, the issue of language is is really important um, in thinking about you know discovery. Um, if you're turned into, if if you're useful, you're going to die. If you're not useful, you're going to die. Discovery is about death it's not about thriving wow <laughs> you're right you're right i hadn't I, ha I hadn't even thought about that but you're 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 absolutely right uh chanda that kind of goes to what you were talking about regarding mauna kea and you know the discovery or the noticing you use you know you call it uh I, it, good the seeing was good you know good seeing and, and how that has affected you know so could, could you talk a little bit more about that yeah, so I, I think the thing that's coming to mind, particularly as you mentioned the question of seeing, is that also this com consumption happens not just to our bodies and to our lands, but also to our with our ideas, right? And this really kind of intersects when you start talking about um, what constitutes good seeing. So just to define that for everybody, one of the reasons that the fight about Mauna Kea is happening at all is because it is at a very high altitude. So it's above certain layers of the atmosphere. It's a great place to put a telescope. And this is something astronomers know, partly because like Native Hawaiians told them themselves about it, that when um, Europeans first showed up, they were like, check out this awesome place we have to look at the sky. And this was embedded in, in the, the cosmology of Kanaka folks and in, in their con self-conception. And here I want to point to um, Keolu Fox, who is um, a, a Kanaka Naoli uh, geneticist and bioethicist, who I just saw give like, this really powerful talk where he was talking about how our genome is shaped by the land. And then at the very end of the talk, he looped it back around and said, like, look, when I say that the land is my ancestor, I literally am telling you that I can show you using science that my genome was shaped by the land and so was your genome. Um, so when we're telling you that we're fighting over our ancestor and we are fighting over our family member, that's a scientific statement. Like, let me be clear with you that from my point of view as a Kanaka scientist, this is a, a scientific statement. Um, so, you know, when we talk about like colonizing the land, part of what was being colonized was this idea that 
Europeans discovered that it was a good place to look at the sky when that was already known by the, the people who were there and had developed their own sensibility of what therefore people's relationship to that land should be because of its specific location relative to the sky and to Wake, the, the sky father. Um, and so I, I think that, you know, one of the pieces that can sometimes get lost in these conversations about consumption is that it's, I think it's easier for us to grasp material consumption that is, has a physicality to it that's immediately obvious to us, like consuming the labor of Black people, consuming, um, you know, the, 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 the bodies of, for example, Indigenous women. Um, all of all of these different ways that um, there's physical consumption, but also not thinking about the consumption of indigenous ideas, um, as as th that the Enlightenment is built out of Europeans traveling around the world, meeting ideas, and saying, "Hey, that's cool," and taking it back to Europe and collating it, and Europe becoming this unique geography for thought in a particular sense, right? I don't want to say objectively or universally, but in this particular sense, because all of this information is being collated in one place, which does give people this interesting opportunity to put ideas from different geographies in conversation with each other in a way that they are not in conversation with each other elsewhere. And that's not to say it's the only conversation or even the most important one, but it does produce this one line of thought. So when we talk about consumption, material consumption, um, I, I, I think it's, it's really, and when we talk about discovery, that part of what needs to be thought about is how often what is identified as discovery isn't discovery at all, even if we are taking the word on its face value definition and not sitting there doing the material analysis of what it does to people's lives to be discovered. Um, that what discovery usually means is, just to put it colloquially, we came, we noticed you had some shit, we took your shit, right? <laughs> Which I'm just like summarizing in some sense, like what Daniel said. And sometimes what we noticed was your body or sometimes what we noticed was your expertise. Um, and that we will simultaneously not recognize you as an expert. We will gaslight you and your descendants for, for generations and centuries um, and say that we were the experts and then I just want to tie this to, um, to di diversity and inclusion, since um, you know, we're talking about books that talk about science today. Um, but then the message is we want to bring Black people into science. We want to bring um, Indigenous youth into science and show them that like, science is interesting and exciting. And it's like, yeah, we've been doing rational knowledge production and analysis the entire time. Some of what y'all know is stuff that we told you, right? And, and so diversity and inclusion discourse in a real way can be thought of as like the next step of colonialism, which is um, colonizing our minds to um, not see our history for what it was.
that was I mean, the chat was all like wow <laughs> you know there's lots of you know there's lots of good insights from both of you on that but yeah I mean you know the discovery and then you know and then just the way we I like that idea and I also I really liked in your book um Chandari talk about I'd, I'd have heard Roxanne Dunbar our teats do the same thing uh Europe being a peninsula of Asia and just really situating it ge geographically for people. I've, I heard uh, Roxanne in, in a workshop say that, in a webinar say that, and she, she, it, it's absolutely the truth. Europe, I don't know why we think of it as a continent. It's a peninsula jutting off of Asia. It's, it doesn't even meet the criteria for a continent and yet somehow we think that it is, but they just, you're right, they just kind of grabbed everything and then collated in their own particular way and, wrote it down which made it wrote it down in a very particular way which gave it a kind of finality now this is this is the way it is and then everybody else gets compared gets compared to that and it's really it really hasn't just, hasn't been helpful can i just make a comment about the european peninsula of asia thing i am um, because i use this term in the book and I have to say that part of it was like the disordered cosmos was supposed to be like a science book, right? So it's like, okay, y'all want science. Let's talk science. By our scientific definition, that is not a continent. <laughs> so like, it has to be downgraded if we're going to be accurate. That's right. <laughs> and that was, that was how I thought about it. I was waiting for it. I actually haven't gotten any questions about it, but that's my answer, right? It's just, it's just not, it's an unscientific statement. Thank you. Right. <laughs> like. No, so I, Europe is Pluto is what you're saying. Exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> Europe is the Pluto of, uh, of the world. <laughs> so Ben, you had, you had posted something on Facebook about your favorite thing to do when you discover ramps, when you come across ramps, when you, you know, your favorite thing to do, you go for a walk and you saw ramps and it was your, you know, so what, what is your favorite thing to do and, and why does that matter? Why is it important? Oh, it's leave them the heck alone and keep their location secret because yeah so i'm kind of in a um daniel so i'm sure you meet plenty of these people out west but like there's there's a kind of a resurgence i don't know there's this it's, it's becoming really trendy again to uh go and harvest wild foods and a lot of people think that living in good, like loving nature and being in good relationship with nature just means knowing what plants out there are good for you and how they're edible. And it's like, they're so enthusiastic about building this relationship and they just kind of like fly at it like Leroy Jenkins and they, they jump into it without any real plan or knowing what they're doing. That's what I'm saying. And, um, the what you know the wild ramps were just about extirpated from eastern north america by people doing exactly that and so i think like you know these conversations about discovery um i mean like the mississauga of central ontario probably weren't too stoked when ramps were discovered by settlers um and and yeah and then so looping that back to relationship to land, sometimes acting in good relationship to something and acting in a loving way to something involves just leaving it the heck alone, right? Like you love it from, love it from a safe and respectful distance. 
if you are going to harvest something, make sure you know exactly what its life cycle is like, how it reproduces, how long it takes to germinate, what conditions it takes to germinate in. Well, and that's the observation. Chanda, you were talking about the observation of, of being at home. And I think I think braiding sweetgrass actually hit the New York Times bestseller last year for the first seven years after it was published, I think because everybody was stuck at home and it became everyone's gateway drug into the natural world. So, which is great, which is great. I love it. No disrespect to braiding sweetgrass. I think I was one of its biggest apostles for a long time. <laughs> so no it's a good book, but I don't want people to stop there. I want people to keep going and unfolding un unfolding the world. Celeste, can you talk a little bit about, um, you had a change in direction in your life. You went from, I'm going to fight on the world stage to what are we fighting for? Yeah, so I, um, I was on my way to become a lawyer and fight for um, indigenous rights, human rights. Sorry, my internet is a little unstable. So I might feel a little crackly to you, but Manitoulin, I mean, it is what it is. <laughs> it's lovely here, but we have satellite internet, folks. The struggle is real. So, <laughs> and I was working with the UN and I discovered, I discovered in myself that um, what, what I really was fighting for with food sovereignty um, was something that was not being practiced and I thought well actually my great aunt passed away and she was a great agriculturalist on uh, for my nation and I had lost so much by not taking that time and going with her and spending that time with her I felt a, like a huge hole because I thought here I was in you know in university and wasting all this time and the knowledge was being passed down and I wasn't there. I was missing it, I was losing it and it just went right through my fingers and I just felt a great sadness. And um, I thought, what am I, what are we working towards? What are we doing? Is it ego driven? And I just had a real big talk with myself and I thought, okay, so what do I wanna spend the rest of my life doing? Is it going to school? Is it being in a colonial structure where I'm fighting every tooth and nail academics and, and sure that's exciting, but I mean, what does that give us as a people in the end of it? Um, so I switched and now I'm farming, I'm doing agricultural knowledge um, on the land, literally building a center for traditional, traditional agricultural knowledge for indigenous women and youth to literally bring us back onto the land that we can learn together and um, practice actual sovereignty, actual sovereignty, not just talk about it with other academics who also want to, you know, talk about it. So what we're doing is we're, is we're planting the seeds, literally, in ourselves. And I think that's going to do a lot of healing. So, yeah, so that's what I'm doing now. And it's a real journey because there's a lot that we don't know. And there's a lot that we've lost, but you were talking about medicine and medicine that's coming to me. And that's what's coming to me. Seeds are coming to me. People are bringing me things and saying, can you plant this? You have land. Can you, can you plant this for me and um, keep it going? And we're exchanging with things and it's really moving forward. And it's just, it's just amazing to have that um, physical kind of connection and working on land justice. 
getting that land back. I was uh, telling Patty earlier, I was in a, I was in a webinar and uh, we were talking about land back and I want to literally talk about land back from nature conservancies. When I moved here, there's actually, it's a, it's a bizarre place there in the island that I live. There's no, there's no public land. There is no crown land here. And it's bizarre. It's all public, it's all private land that's been bought by nature conservancies, trying to take care of nature, trying to, to you know, I guess commodify it but they don't let indigenous people share in that land. So what are they doing with this land? So I had a conversation with someone, with one of the board members and I thought, you know what? We need, we need to share this land. And he's like, you know what? I just don't think that that's not a really good fit with us. I don't think that's a good fit. And I thought, wow, indigenous people are not a good fit. That's really interesting that you say that. <laughs> So, um, yeah, I'll be coming after him in the next couple of years. <laughs> oh, yeah. So we need to think about land use and land, land back. What does that physically mean? What does land sovereignty mean? What does food sovereignty mean? Well, it, it means these things, practical things on the ground. And I like what uh, Eve Tuck and Kay Wing Yang say. Yes, it does mean give the land back. It actually means give it back. <laughs> it's not a metaphor. Give it back. Figure it out. So I know Neil, you plant, you plant things. Every see every year I watch your your peppers grow and your morning glories. And yeah. Um it's it's kind of, you know, if I have a hobby, it's it's my balcony plants. And you know, I live in an apartment, a second story, um, you know, second second floor balcony with um apartment with a balcony. Um, the peppers are kind of an accident. I, I had bought a poblano from the, uh, from the grocery store and it's just teeming with seeds inside. And I'm like, well, let's see if these germinate. And they did. And uh, I have two plants that have survived almost two years now on my balcony. Um, Houston long growing seasons, uh, <laughs> and um, and I I've eaten poblanos from my bushes. Uh, they are smaller than what I got at the grocery store. They are not as spicy. They're very mild, um, but it's kind of a cool thing. Now I've tried a lot of other things that have failed miserably. Uh, I've tried growing beans. I've tried growing uh, some kind of uh, some peas and other things. So it's not like I have an exceptionally green thumb for this sort of balcony gardening. Uh, but I also have like different things. Like I have an, some sort of citrus tree that I'm not really sure what kind of citrus tree it is. It, it could be a lemon, it could be an orange or a grapefruit, it, I, but it's about as tall as I am now in a pot that grew completely by accident, uh, germinated from a seed. I, I, I sometimes compost on my balcony as well. And, um, and this is where this seed germinated. And it's like, okay, it's green, it's growing. I'll, I will see what happens. It's never bloomed. I don't know that it ever will. Uh, and you know, and, and my morning glories last year took off. They'd never, I've tried several times before. They had never taken off before. Last year they did. They seem to be doing okay this year so far. I, 
but it's it's um I, I don't know what it is in me that wants to do this exactly, other than I'm a farm boy that was always around things growing, you know, besides having our gardens and our and our farmland, mama always had lots of potted plants too, and uh, and I was always interested. Um, and it seems to mystify so many of my friends. I, it, it's like I'm doing magic or something. I was like, I don't know. There is something magical about growing food. I mean, yeah, I mean, Ben's right. I am not, I am not the person who's going to get out there and weed that garden. And he's done a really good job of making sure that he's planting things that don't require, that aren't going to be high maintenance. But there is something really magical about putting seeds in the ground and then eating them. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. No, there, there's a mystery about it. I, I, I grant you that. But it's also just like the most natural thing in the world. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, it happens without us. <laughs> <laughs> the world cannots. Debatable. <laughs> I, I will say that one of the realizations I had last spring was that I found buds to be really creepy. Um, and I realized that that's like a socialization thing. And I think it's because like so much of my experience of seeing things in there right before their opening stage was through the lens of like alien movies. So when I was actually confronted with seeing a lot of them, that I felt like my garden was about to attack me. <laughs> and I had to like kind of have this whole conversation with myself that no, the movies are based on that, not the other way around, <laughs> right? Well, and depending on your sensitivity to pollen, they may be attacking you, but uh, that's a whole That's fair, <laughs> that's fair. But it, it definitely was kind of informative about like what happens when we get put in situations where we're not surrounded by a lot of things that are growing or we're from different, like, you know, I did see things grow growing up in Los Angeles, but I saw like ice plants, which is like very hard to get started. And it doesn't have these buds that pop out every spring and look like little aliens that are about to like, you can tell I still have this like <laughs> that's hilarious so there were two things that came together for me in un in undrowned again because I, I just finished it she's writing about dolphins and whales and, and how they use echolocation and how echolocation and she's talking about echolocation being a kind of relationship Right, because it's bouncing a sound and then getting in, and then getting information back. And she talks about these dolphins that live in the Ganges River, and it's so silty they they really they can't they, you know they 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 don't have much vision visual ability, and so they're constantly saying I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, and responding back I'm here, I'm here, and so this you know this constant echolocation, and then for me that combined with Badger, it, there's a part in Badger Daniel where you write that the more distanced we become the more potential there is for other than human relatives to just become shallow symbols, forgotten or actively dis disregarded. And so for me, those two, those two ideas kind of came together in my head that for echolocation to work, we have to be, we have to be in good relationship with each other because if echolocation is showing us, we're pre showing predators where we are, that is not good. <laughs> you know, so we need to be close enough to be in good relationship with each other and to see each other, um, you know, to see each other in a good way. So I guess, Daniel, I'm, I'm throwing back to you about 
about that potential, about how we get distanced and we get distanced in city life. We just get distanced. I mean, even in the country, I get distanced. Ben's always reminding me that if I'm going to be connected to nature, I have to actually go out into it. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, this is one of those. It's a challenging conversation in a lot of ways because intimacy can also be violent, right? Um, so distance and intimacy, I think it these are always in context and you know and i think in back to ben's comment about you know sometimes the best thing to do is just leave things alone there's also that that idea um you know when we're when we are kind of asking the world for permission what if they what if the world says no um what what happens when animals don't want to have anything to do with us um and i think I, I think there's there's a really important tension at play between uh, between being connected and being um, and you know going back to the idea of, about, about exploitativeness. Like, I mean, how many men think that love is about possessiveness, right? Um, and and then the violence that's associated with that. Um, you know, and we do that with our pets. And I'm a, I've got one of the reasons I keep looking down is because my dogs are very interested in what's happening here. Um, and, and wanting up one of them once up on my lap, uh, while we're doing all this, but there's like, even the, the basic foundations of pet ownership are coercive and violent. Um, and, you know, being somebody who has, you know, furry animals who live in our house. I mean, that the foundation of that relationship is still one that's very dangerous to them. Like we, we dominate everything about their lives um, out of love. And it's, it's, a, it's a very complicated tension to, to grapple with. Um, I think distance, it's easier to, it's easier to get into a commodifying mindset at a distance. But closeness brings danger too, and I think we we have to we have to sit with the difficulties of both intimacy and distance, um, and bring an ethical lens. And like Chanda said, that, that you know, bring different ways of thinking and different ways of relating, um, and different ways of imagining into those relationships. Because I think an, an intimate an intimacy that is based on a patriarchal mindset is murderous. So I think it, 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 proximity isn't enough. We have to change the way in which we're in relationship. That actually goes really nicely into a quote uh, from Chanda's book, uh, which I think is the husband's quote, uh, we are a quark assembly of supernova remnants on a journey to honor, to know and honor all our galactic relations. Galactic relations, I think, is the part from, uh, from, from your husband. But I just, I just love that phrase because that's, you know, kind of what Daniel's talking about. It, it's not necessarily about physical closeness. How do we know and honor our galactic relations when they're so far from us? You know, um, you know how how do we how do we do that? I, I just love that phrase, 
quark assembly of supernova remnants on a journey to know and honor all our galactic relations. Yeah, so the, the quark assembly, that part is me. It was actually kind of a running joke that for a while I put, I had like, I'm a bet with someone that if I put quark assembly on the bottom of my slides for my talks to see if anybody would ask me about it because someone was like, oh, you'll definitely get asked about it. And nobody has ever asked me what does quark assembly mean? You know, sometimes when you're giving professional talks, you're supposed to put the name at the, your name at the bottom of every slide. So people remember your name. So occasionally I would slip in Chanda Prescott Weinstein quark assembly. Um, and, and it really, you know, it should be like a, a quark and electron assembly, I guess, if I was, I was really being careful there. Um, but all our galactic relations is something that my spouse came up with. Um, and I, I also feel like I have to mention Eve Tuck here because the moment that um, he said that to me, I was like, I really love that phrase, but I also want to be careful about where it came from. And so I reached out to Eve to have a conversation with her um, about, you know, the different ways that that might be rooted in different modes of thought and wanting to make sure that we were being respectful um, in, in, in its use. And so folks who pick up the book will also see that I make a point as that that section, all our galactic relations, that's the fourth phase of the book, um, that it opens with Winona LaDuke. Mm. Um, and, and, and that actually, I spent a lot of time on Black feminism in that last phase of the book. And even so, a lot of the, the multiple chapters open with the words of non-Black Indigenous women. Mm. Um, and I was proactively throughout the book thinking about closing this gap of Black as non-Indigenous or Indigenous as non, as fundamentally non-Black in, in a couple of different ways, which is that, you know, there are fam out there who are Black and Indigenous in the sense that, like, I think we all understand the word Indigenous to mean um, and not just our, our folks who are freedmen, but also folks who are Black and Indigenous in other ways, right? Um, but I also did want to grapple a little bit with, um, you know, the fact that my ancestors were Indigenous people who were torn away from their Indigenous communities. And in some sense, I am the way that in the word indigenous gets constructed, particularly in our academic discourses, I think our grassroots discourses can actually be more flexible. But in our academic discourses are very much, you either are or you aren't, here are the rules. And what I found this to translate into is um, breaks in our solidarity that I think don't necessarily need to exist in our, in our ability to be in political solidarity, but also finding myself in environments where people are like, yes, our organization has indigenous people from Northern Europe and indigenous people from Latin America and the United States and Australia. And then I'm like, so where are the Africans? And they're like, yeah, we don't have any African members. And so then you have this whole continent that's constructed as non-indigenous somehow. And I think the vehicle, <clears throat> pardon me, the vehicle for that unconstruction, I would say as, as indigenous is black Americans 
as framing Black Americans as fundamentally non-Indigenous because we can't articulate our claims to our land and to our traditional communities. And therefore, the people who remained in those communities, by virtue of also being Black in this um, social sense of Black, are therefore also not Indigenous. And, 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 and so, um, you know, I was in, in small ways, I think, that wasn't the centerpiece of the book. I did want to push that a little bit, but in a way that it felt like reaching out and being in community as opposed to, I wanna fight with people about this word. I wanna fight with people about like what, like about ownership over a word, because I think in some sense, some of this is about ownership. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I don't wanna reproduce that ownership narrative, um, that, that, capital, that capitalist conversation that Daniel was talking about earlier. Um, so I just wanted to share that that was kind of the story. And, and even as the book came out, I was nervous about it. I was like, I wonder if people are gonna, are gonna take all our galactic relations and say, this is um, uh, appropriation. And um, I didn't, we feel, we are so hurt by white supremacy and colonialism that I didn't want somebody to feel hurt. I think like, even, even if like I hadn't done anything wrong, that's sort of not the point. I didn't want anybody to feel hurt by a book that I hoped would feel like it was for us and that us could maybe be more expansive than maybe we had been thinking about it. Mm. Well, and I know that's something that I have been really challenged by in the last few years of doing this podcast with Carrie, um, you know, and some of the people that we've talked about is really kind of broadening my understanding and use of, of the word indigenous. And, and because as particularly in Canada, we think of indigenous as being specifically indigenous to here, right? Like all indigenous people live here, uh, mostly in Canada, because in the United States, it's Native Americans. You know, like it's just, it's just a really weird kind of way that we think about it. And so actually, as I'm working on my own project, I've gone back and changed the language in it. Um, so, you, you know, so that I'm not using indigenous and kind of that Canadian way that, that we use it to refer to only indigenous, you know, people who are indigenous to this place that, um, yeah, so that that's something that I have that I have really been challenged on in, in the way that I talk and the way that I think and, and, well, and even in the way that I've shaped these conversations, because it was originally just indigenous to hear books that I was thinking about. And then in our conversation with Tope at Afarican, um, about the souls of Yoruba people, I was like, whoa, I need to completely reshape all of this. <laughs> Where are my Black authors? And then I realized how many gaps I had in my bookcase. I've got lots of Black authors in my bookcase. Um, but it's a very narrow story that they tell, like this, you, you know, over the course of this year, we're, we're uh, you know, looking at a number of different topics, a number of different things. And I didn't have any Black authors for memoir. There's a lot of Black authors writing memoirs, but they weren't on my bookshelf. So I had all these gaps. So here I'm feeling like I should have known better. But, you know, we're all always learning, right? You know, so I had to do do that work. So I really appreciate you, you, you know, you talking about that and, and, and working that through in your book. I, I really liked that. Um, I, re- I really liked that in there. And now um, I kind of forget where I was going. So I'm just going to uh, throw to Celeste and see what Celeste is thinking. <laughs> you know, knowing everything. And I just wrote down, knowing everything is a Western concept. Yeah. 
Mm -hmm. Right? So stop beating yourself up about that because we will never know everything about it. And, you know, in our concepts too, and a lot of people, you know, it's about experience. So it's about experience, not knowledge, right? Because mm -hmm. um, we talk, even the word knowledge, right, is something that is a Western concept. It's not in, even though we say, you know, traditional knowledge or traditional ecological knowledge or traditional agricultural knowledge. It's really not knowledge per se, it's experience. Thank you for listening. Ombe streams live throughout 2021 on www.twitch.tv/pattywithay_wbk on the third Wednesday of every month. Episodes are archived there as highlights and released as podcasts to those who are subscribed to Medicine for the Resistance. Medicine for the Resistance is a podcast I co-host with Carrie Goring, where we explore themes similar to the conversation you just heard. The Colonial Project wants to control how and if we see each other. Our work is in investigating the stories we were not told so that we do. You can support this work at Patreon slash pay your rent or by buying us a coffee at ko fi.com slash medicine for the resistance. You can find out more about me and the things I do at daanis.ca where I post transcripts for these episodes as well as thoughts on my blog. You can sign up for my newsletters. You can find me on Twitter at G-I-N-D-A-A-N-I-S if you want to talk about the things you've heard. Thank you to Pearlie Papineau for her editing skills and Liz Barkley for the transcripts.